as we might pray, speak, Lord, uh, for your servant is listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I will have to apologize in advance. My throat and voice is, I think, worse than it was last week. So I may have to pause for a coughing fit now and then, hopefully not. I've tried to medicate myself to the glory of God, and um, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 as we continue in our series on the Ten Commandments. Today we're looking at the Fourth Commandment. And let me say a few words to begin with before we get to the text. We're going to look at three different views of the Fourth Commandment today. Now, I will say immediately, those, these are not the only three views on the fourth commandment. In one of our reference works that I'm using, John Frame's book, The Doctrine on the Christian Life, he presents no fewer than six different views on the fourth commandment, two of which are two different views from the same theologian, whose views apparently change in the course of his life. Now, rather than be that tedious, I'm going to stick to just three views and these are not frames categories, these are mine. I've tried to just kind of categorize these the best as I see fit. Uh, there are other perspectives that perhaps exist at the edge of these views or in between them, so just keep that in mind. Finally, or not finally, two more comments. One is that um, when you come to look at the fourth commandment, it can be a challenge because I think sooner or later you have to kind of come to grips at some level of how you view all of Scripture. Looking at the fourth commandment, I think sooner or later kind of makes you look at degrees of continuity or discontinuity that you see between the Old and New Testament. Um, now, that might not mean a whole lot to some of you, and that's fine. Um, but it really does, I think, um, looking at the Sabbath commandment, uh, it necessarily forces you to look at much broader scope and what the scripture says in a number of issues. Keep that in mind. And then finally, sometimes it's a frustrating exercise because as you read about the fourth commandment, I'll read one writer, one scholar that uses verses X, Y, and Z to support his view. Then I'll read another writer, another scholar that uses the exact same verses to support his view. They're using the same text but arriving at different conclusions. So just keep that in mind today. And I found that if nothing else... Now I'm able to at least poke holes in everyone's argument because I know where those kind of the soft underbellies are of everyone's view. And you're welcome to poke holes in mine. Um, so Exodus chapter 20, I'll read verses 8 through 11 where it says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that are in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, let's just start with what I'm calling the ceremonial view. Now, this view holds a few things. I'm going to talk about these just very briefly, and we'll look at more text as we go. But this first ceremonial view holds that uh, labor and the Sabbath are not creation ordinances. It would say that these were not laws given to Adam and Eve before the fall. Secondly, this view would hold that the fourth commandment is not a moral law, that even though it exists within the Ten Commandments, this view holds that the Sabbath commandment is actually a ceremonial law, not a moral law. Thirdly, and importantly, the ceremonial view would say that Jesus abrogated, which is just a word that means did away with or set aside, Jesus set aside the fourth commandment in his teaching and his activity regarding the Sabbath. And then finally, this view would hold that Paul, in his epistles, wrote that the Sabbath should not be observed any longer. Now, those can be very compelling arguments when you look at one after the other. Um, let's look at a bit more of the, of the biblical data to see how this view arrives here. Flip backwards 
all the way backwards to Genesis chapter 2, to the creation account. Because one of the arguments that the ceremonial view makes is what we see or what we don't see in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where it says this. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. And by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the Sabbath day and sanctified it. Because in it, he rested from all of his work, which God had created and made. So notice here, it's talking about God completing creation and then resting. But there's no commandment given here. I think that's fair to say. And so this first view says, well, there's no commandment given in Genesis chapter 2 for Adam and Eve to observe anything. So then it's not a creation ordinance, says this first view. We've got to keep that in mind. Now flip back to Exodus, but go forward, Exodus 31. Another text that's important to see how the ceremonial view works, Exodus 31 verses 16 and 17, where this tells us a, a little bit more about what the Sabbath is about. For it says, So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath, to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. So we see in verse 17 that the Sabbath is also considered a sign. It was a sign, or as another theologian says, a token of the Old Covenant. So the ceremonial view wants to be very clear on the fact that since the Sabbath was a sign of the Old Covenant, and we as New Covenant believers are no longer under that covenant, then this commandment, this Sabbath um, keeping, should not be seen as required of us. Now, we'll look at more texts as we go, but let me make some observations. Um, first of all, for this view, there's really no reason to talk about the narrow meaning or even the broad meaning of the fourth commandment because it holds that this commandment has been done away with. Um, in weeks past, we've considered the narrow and the broad meaning of each commandment. In this case, with this view, we don't really even need to do that. But a few more observations. Um, in some ways, this view, it is placing a strong emphasis on what the New Testament is saying, which we'll look at in a moment, perhaps in some cases over against what the Old Testament says. In some ways, I think it's making a sharp distinction between the old and the new. And it's also being very clear about exalting Jesus, as we'll see in Mark chapter 2, as Lord of the Sabbath, this view seeing that Jesus is thus able to do what he wants to with it, being able to set it aside. And then I think that rightly this view wants to be very clear that there shouldn't be any hint or possibility of a works righteousness mentality, which I think is also rightly focusing on our freedom in Christ, knowing that we are no longer bound to the burden of law-keeping as a means of justification. So those are just observations that I'm making about this view. I'm not trying to analyze it or critique it. But that's a ceremonial view. And as I was looking at this, part of me was hesitant to name names of who it is that holds each of these views, but I think it's worthwhile. You know, if you look at the resources on your handout, you could find out for yourself, but I'll make it easier. So if you're looking for a name of a teacher or someone that would hold this view, well, I think the most obvious choice would be John MacArthur. So that's a pastor we know and love. He holds to this view. Now let's keep going. Um, view number two today, the eschatological view, or you might call it the spiritual view. Now, this view, this might be an oversimplification, but I think it's fair to say that this view spiritualizes the fourth commandment. And it shares some things in common with the ceremonial view in that it also holds that the Sabbath and labor were not creation ordinances. They were not given to Adam and Eve before the fall. This view also says that Paul taught in his epistles that the Sabbath shouldn't be observed any longer. But this view looks at Jesus' 
activity and teaching differently. Rather than saying that Jesus set aside or did away with the fourth commandment, this view says that Jesus reinterpreted it rather than did away with it. And again, when we look at the text in a moment, we'll perhaps talk more about that. But the main thrust of this view is that the fourth commandment for the new covenant believer is really a preview or a shadow of the future rest that we will enjoy in heaven. This view makes much, I think, of the data in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, particularly honing in to verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4, which are on your handout. And one writer that holds this view says, quote, The Sabbath has been reinterpreted in a spiritual sense as the cessation of one's own works into entry into God's rest, end quote. Or perhaps if I were to put it another way, they would say that the Sabbath speaks to the believer of the richness of what God has in store for them in Christ in an eternal Sabbath rest. So, here we could define a narrow meaning. For this view, what would the narrow meaning of the fourth commandment be? Well, you could say it like this. Well, understanding the true eternal Sabbath rest that Christ has bought for us in the gospel, then we are to rest and delight in the shadow of that future rest or in the reality to which the Lord's day points. Now, a few more observations. Um, this view is more Sabbatarian than the first view. Although to obey the fourth commandment in this view is a strictly spiritual issue. It's not about physical rest. It's not even about a particular day of the week. It focuses again on a spiritual rest that Christ has bought for us, which the believer now enjoys. I think this view is also um, trying to strike a very good balance between the data we see in the New Testament and the Old Testament. I don't think it's being slavish to either continuity or discontinuity between the Testaments. And like the ceremonial view, I think it's also wanting to be very clear, wanting to safeguard against a works righteousness mentality or that of outward law-keeping, just for law-keeping's sake. Now, if we're going to assign names to this view, well, I think it'd be safe to say that John Calvin held this view. He held that um, the Sabbath was basically a symbol of redemption. So Calvin didn't believe um, that the Sabbath should be observed as a strictly a weekly day of rest. So there's one name. Um, a modern-day theologian that holds this view would be D.A. Carson. Some of you may be familiar with some of his writings or work. Uh, one of his books that he edited on this subject is on your handout as well. So, let's move on to view number three, the, what I'm calling the Reformed view. Now, already I'm in some difficulty in calling it this, because I've just said that Calvin doesn't hold this view, but just keep listening. Um, I realize it's maybe not a perfect name. If we were going to be more precise, we might say that this view might be the Puritan view, or the Westminster view. This is basically the view that was arrived at by the Westminster Assembly in the 1640s, which of course the document they produced, Westminster Confession of Faith, became the doctrinal standards for the Presbyterian Church, first in Scotland and then in America. This view is also followed by the Reformed Baptists in the writing of the 1689 Second London Confession. And it's followed by the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of 1853, which some of us that are up on Baptist history knows that that document effectively became the more modern-day Baptist faith and message that any one of us that are familiar or have come from a Southern Baptist background. I look back at this today. It had been a number of years since I thought to look at the BSNM, um, BFNM. If you look at the Baptist faith and message, it's walked back the language a little bit from the 1853 New Hampshire Confession, but it reads essentially as a Sabbatarian document. So, if you want names for this view, um, well, basically all of the Puritans, followed by American Presbyterians from Charles Hodge to B.B. Warfield to our two Johns that I have on your handout, John Murray, John Frame, Reformed Baptist would be, that held this view, Spurgeon, 
and yet another John, John Piper. It's interesting to me, we have Johns in every category today. So I don't know if John McKenzie wants to put his name on the list somewhere. I don't see him, but uh, lots of Johns everywhere today. Now, this view is, interestingly enough, essentially based on the same four points that the ceremonial view is based. However, it actually sees the opposite in all of the same biblical data. So it sees that the Sabbath, as well as the ordinance of labor, are creation ordinances. That is, they were given to Adam and Eve before the fall. We'll talk about that more in a moment. It also holds that the fourth commandment itself being sandwiched between the other nine commandments is a moral law, not a ceremonial law. The reform view also holds that Jesus never abrogated, never set aside the fourth commandment. We'll look more at that. And then I realize this is slicing it thin, number four. I think this is on your handout. But this view holds that Paul's teaching in his epistles cannot be conclusively shown to be expressly anti-Sabbatarian. So that is slicing it thin, and we'll see why. Now, um, let's look again. I think we're still in Exodus. Go back to chapter 20. And let's start to think about why this view sees it the way it does. As I said before, the ceremonial view maintains, and I think again rightly, that in Genesis, the creation account, there wasn't commandment language given for Adam and Eve to observe the Sabbath. But based on what we see here in Exodus 20, the Reformed view is able to make the case. Let me just read verse 11 again from Exodus 20. Because it says, for, that's an important word, for, for this view, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the Reformed view sees here this language in Exodus 20 verse 11. It is taking the same language from Genesis chapter 2. And the Reformed view believes that here in Exodus 20, verse 11, is the basis for why we have the fourth commandment. Why did God give this commandment? Well, it tells us in verse 11, because the Lord made, he created the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. So the Reformed view sees here that there must have been a connection back with Genesis that the Sabbath as an ordinance, as an institution, wasn't given for the first time here in Exodus chapter 20. Now flip backward a few pages to Exodus chapter 16, another text that they point to. Exodus 16, and I'll read verses 22 through 30. Now this is after the Exodus, perhaps not long after, and it says this, now it came about on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, and then he said to them, this is what the Lord meant, tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord, bake what you will bake and boil what you would boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. And Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. But six days you shall gather it, and on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. And it came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day, remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. The people rested on the seventh day. So the Reformed view also point to this text to bolster their argument saying, well, this is before the commandments were given. This is before Sinai. 
And in fact, for, for their point of view, it doesn't really matter how long before Sinai, because in verse 23 and verse 29, the words are past tense. This is what the Lord meant, it says. The Lord has given you the Sabbath. So again, based on what this is saying, Exodus 16, the Reformed view again believes that the Sabbath must have been instituted before Exodus 20, in fact, before Exodus 16. And so they make the conclusion that since, again, Exodus 20, 11 is making a connection back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, that the Sabbath must have been instituted not on Sinai, but in Eden. So, there's a couple of comments about the Reformed view, but let's keep going and think about some New Testament texts. Flip far forward to Mark chapter 2. Because we have to look at the way that Jesus deals with the Sabbath. Mark chapter 2. I'll read verses 23 through 28. And it came about that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, See here, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar? Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and he gave it also to those who were with him. And he was saying to them, the Sabbath was not made for man, and sorry, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So this is a familiar text. And the Pharisees, as always, are hounding Jesus and hounding his disciples. In this case, they're accusing them of Sabbath-breaking. I think it's important to make a distinction here that is not always made. In that whenever we read gospel accounts of Jesus saying and doing things on the Sabbath, healing people on the Sabbath, as we'll see in a moment, um, many times the Jews and the Pharisees accuse Jesus and or his disciples of breaking the Sabbath as they do here. But I think we have to understand that in none of these cases, I think, was Jesus ever actually doing anything that was breaking the fourth commandment, nor were any of his disciples, nor did anything that Jesus told any of the people that he healed to do, nor were those things actual breaches of the fourth commandment. We have to keep in mind that for many years up until this point, the Jews, led by the Pharisees, have been erecting an elaborate scaffold of additional rules, regulations, and criteria that were in addition to God's actual law. They were fencing the law. If God's law said you can only go this far, well then the Pharisees wanted to bring the boundary further back in order to keep people from ever actually getting to an actual breakage of the law. For example, today, if the speed limit is 70, well, then you better not go faster than 55. That's the kind of thing that the Pharisees were doing. And the Sabbath requirements in particular were, um, what's the word I used? A nightmare. There were 39 different categories of work they defined categories, and within each of those categories, there were actual things that they would say, you can do this, you can't do this, you can do this, you can't do this. Making very fine distinctions about every kind of work you could imagine. And I say this because I think that a lot of our ideas associated with Sabbath keeping are based more on the Pharisees' distortions of in additions to God's law rather than on God's law itself. And I think we see that in Mark chapter 2. Nowhere in the Old Testament case law would the disciples taking a stroll, picking heads of grain, that would not have been a breach of God's law. 
It was a breach against the Pharisees' additional requirements and regulations, but it was not a breach of the actual law. I think that's an important distinction to make. And of course, we know what Jesus does. He responds to the charge of Sabbath breaking by referring to this account from 1 Samuel 21, David and his companions eating the consecrated bread. And of course, the thrust of Jesus' argument is not, well, if you think that what we did was bad, well, what David did was even worse. No, that's not the thrust of his argument. The thrust of his argument is that David and his companions were not breaking the law when they ate the consecrated bread, and neither are my disciples breaking the law either. But then in verse 27, this for me was always one of the more enigmatic statements that Jesus made. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. What's that mean? It doesn't seem clear to me at first. But the Reformed view, again, I'm trying to describe to you the Reformed view of the Sabbath. The Reformed view in this verse, Mark 2, 27, sees creation language here. Now, other views dispute that. But Jesus says the Sabbath was made. That's creation language, according to this view. And it says it was made for man. This man, Anthropos. This is man in the most generic sense. So Jesus saying that the Sabbath was instituted for man as man, mankind, with respect to man's particular needs to work and to rest. Not the other way to look at it, saying not that man was created to fit in with the rules and requirements and regulations of the Sabbath, no other way around. The Sabbath was instituted, created for man, for his good. And then in verse 28, this is the verse that the ceremonial view hones into, where it says the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The ceremonial view says, well, this shows that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, is able to do with the Sabbath whatever he wants to, even able to set it aside. The reform view actually says, well, really, this is not so much a statement about what Jesus is able to do with the Sabbath, but if Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, which according to verse 27, this view sees it as a creation ordinance, if Jesus is Lord over something that God created, then that's a statement of deity, really, that Jesus is Lord over the things that God has created and instituted. It's a clear statement of deity, perhaps, more than a statement about what he would do with an actual day of the week. One more gospel account flip forward to John chapter 5. Another familiar passage, Jesus on the Sabbath. John chapter 5, I'm not going to read this account this was the healing at the pool of Bethesda. This is when there would be people that were sick or invalids here. They were waiting for this angel to come down and stir the waters, whatever that was about, thinking that they might be healed. And Jesus heals a man and tells him to pick up his pallet and walk. And of course, somehow the Jews are able to see this, and they call out the man for carrying his pallet. Again, we know this story. Well, we should also say that, well, was it really against the fourth commandment for this man to carry his pallet on the Sabbath day? Well, I would say no, that we wouldn't find a prohibition in the Old Testament against carrying your mat. Now, there were prohibitions about carrying heavy loads. I think that has more to do with heavy work you do during the week whether you're out in the field, stonemason, whatever your work is, carrying heavy loads, but a man picking up his pallet to carry it, I don't think was a real breach of the law. For the Jews it was because they had made these other requirements and regulations saying you could only carry little things that fit in the palm of your hand or on the back of your hand. 
So they're saying that he cannot carry his pallet. I don't think that, that was really unlawful. But really what I want to think about is what Jesus says, how he kind of summarizes this whole encounter in verse 17, John 5, 17. And this is the conclusion that Jesus makes. He says, but he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now, we shouldn't be surprised, perhaps, to hear that the father is working until now. That means that the father is always working. We know that's true. God is always working to sustain and uphold his creation. God is always working to move forth his work of redemption for his people. That shouldn't be surprising. That the Father is always working. But then Jesus says, I myself am working. So Jesus is saying here, it's the Sabbath day, I'm working. Well, so what conclusion do we draw from that? Well, as the ceremonial view says, well, he set aside the fourth commandment, so it's not a problem for him to work on the, on the Sabbath day. It's no problem. It's not a problem for the man to carry his pallet, especially if the fourth commandment has been set aside. The reform view, on the other hand, wants to make much of the fact that Jesus always kept the law. I mean, we should intuitively know that. Holy, harmless, undefiled, Jesus never sinned. So if the fourth commandment is still in effect, then Jesus must have kept it. And so how can Jesus say, I myself am working? Well, at this point, the Reformed view makes some distinctions. And if ever the Reformers were good at something, it was about making distinctions, right? They make a distinction about types of work, kinds of work. In this case, one category of work that the reform view wants to make a distinction about are deeds or works of mercy, such that Jesus is saying that it is okay. In fact, it is expected that you would do a work or a deed of mercy on the Sabbath. Jesus' work of healing this man was certainly a deed of mercy, was being merciful to this man. So the reform view believes that Jesus is working here as saying that a certain kind of work on the Sabbath is just fine. In fact, you would expect it. Similarly, you don't have to turn there, but in Luke chapter 14, this is another account you're probably familiar with, the other category of work that Jesus would say would be expected on the Sabbath would be a work or a deed of necessity. This is the account when a, if your son or your ox falls in a pit on the Sabbath day, wouldn't you immediately pull him out, right? A work of necessity on the Sabbath day. So the Reformed view makes the case that Jesus didn't set aside the fourth commandment. He kept it. He obeyed it. And he made some distinctions about types of work that were okay. In fact, expected that you would do on the Sabbath day. Now, I think that the Reformed view can be easily enough supported based on these and other texts in the Gospels. I do think the Reformed view has the biggest hurdle to overcome when you do look at Paul. So let's do that. They're already on your handout because I think it's helpful to see them all kind of together. These three passages, one from Romans, one from Galatians, one from Colossians. Um, John Frame says that these passages may be the most persuasive rebuttal to a Sabbatarian position. That's fair to say. Let's read them. I should already have them in front of me, but I don't. I apologize. There they are. I'll read the first two from Romans 14 and Galatians 4. So Paul writes in Romans 14, verses 5 and 6, One man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And then Galatians 4, You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I labored over you in vain. So in order to approach these texts 
from the reform perspective, perhaps three things can be said. One is an argument can be made that Paul isn't talking about the weekly Sabbath at all. And these two texts, Romans 14 and Galatians 4, he doesn't use the word Sabbath. He says days, but the first argument would be, well, actually Paul is talking about special feast days, special festivals that occur more kind of irregularly, not every week. And in fact, that's the way that some of the feasts and festivals are described in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16 and 23. Again, perhaps secondly, these two passages don't use the word Sabbath at all, so inherently there is a broader range of interpretation that's possible. That's what the Reformed view would say. And then thirdly, for this Galatians passage in particular, the Reformed view would want you to keep the the message of the entire book of Galatians in mind when you think about these verses. The overall context of the entire letter, which was Paul's insistence that the Jewish observances, no works of any kind, are necessary for justification before God. And so Paul is arguing against, in Galatians 4, arguing against keeping days relative to being justified before God, keeping days as a means of justification. Clearly, that is not what any of us should do. And if that is what Paul is doing, if he's arguing against keeping days as a means of justification, well, then this passage might not be relevant to a weekly observance at all, might not be speaking to the Sabbath. But then we have Colossians 2 which is our biggest hurdle yet. Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. Here it uses the word Sabbath explicitly, where it says, Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. This is probably the most difficult verse for the Reformed view to contend with. It talks about a Sabbath day. What the Reformed view would say, however, is that the way that these are listed, a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath day, that that language is very similar, if not the same, as some language that we see, first of all, in 2 Chronicles 31, and also in Nehemiah 10, where it makes some other lists, like burnt offerings, Sabbaths, new moons, festivals, and then offerings, Sabbaths, new moons. So that the Reformed view is essentially the same as what I've already said. Is that in this case, Paul is not talking about the weekly day. He's talking about the more irregular feasts, festivals, sacrifices, things that clearly are ceremonial in nature, things that are clearly part of the ceremonial law, which, as we said in our first week of this study, that the ceremonial law, all those things related to the priesthood, all of those feasts and festivals and the sacrifices, those things certainly have been done away with because Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things. And so the reform view makes the case that in Colossians 2, Paul is referring to those ceremonial observances of feasts and festivals, not referring to the weekly Sabbath at all. Now, you may or may not be persuaded by any of that, but nevertheless, this is what the Reformed view says. If we were to assign a narrow meaning to the Reformed view of the fourth commandment, it might be like this. Whether you want to call it Sunday or the Lord's Day, or the Christian Sabbath, whatever you want to call it. That day is to be set apart as holy to the Lord, so that you may devote your time to public worship, private devotions, and rest. Now, one thing that I haven't said anything about, which I'm not going to say a whole lot about, well, how does the Reform view grapple with the fact that the fourth commandment talks about the seventh day, and yet, obviously, we worship and gather together on the first day. 
how are they able to make that shift? Well, you probably already know the answer to that intuitively. A lot has been written about it, a lot that I can't really get into, other than the fact that we know what we see in the book of Acts is that the early church began gathering on the first day. Certainly, I think, in response to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day, and the Reformed view would say, well, there's really no reason to make a distinction or a difference between the day of worship and the day of rest. Clearly, I think we have biblical warrant to gather together on the first day to worship. The Reformed view simply says, well, one of the reasons that we should rest from our regular labors is so that we may be able to worship. More could be said about the shift from the seventh to the first day, but... I don't know that that's the most important thing to cover today. Um, let's think about the broad meaning. The reform view not only would have kind of a narrow meaning, but there's also a broader meaning here, it would say. In fact, it talks about not only the ordinance of the Sabbath, but also of labor. I find this interesting because sometimes the fact that the fourth commandment actually commands labor, it doesn't just command rest. It says, on six days you shall work. Sometimes that never even enters the discussion. But the reformers make much of this, and they say um, that a stoppage of labor, a Sabbath, is meaningless unless you've also already been told that you should work for a certain period of time. Resting necessarily requires that you must have been working beforehand. So, and really, I think that the fourth commandment is what underlies the doctrine of work that we see Paul emphatically teach in his epistles. These are verses we probably know from 2 Thessalonians 3 and 1 Timothy 5. Paul writes about men and women perhaps who are not doing any work at all, being busybodies. And so he says, work in quiet fashion, eat their own bread. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And then 1 Timothy 5.8, he who doesn't provide for his own has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. How can Paul be so dogmatic, be so emphatic about people who aren't working? I think he's grounded in what he says by what the fourth commandment says. God's people have been commanded to be a working people. And that didn't happen at Sinai, again, as the reformers say, that happened in Eden. Let me read a quote for us from Daniel Block, an eminent Old Testament theologian, where he makes a connection not only about work in regards to the fourth commandment, but also about worship. Because as we've seen previously, all four of the first commandments, the first four commandments, are ultimately about worship. So he makes a connection between work and worship that I think is helpful. This is in his book, For the Glory of God. Daniel Block writes this. To be human is to work, and to work is worship. In laying theological foundations for work as worship, we should note that the scriptures' logical foundations, I'm sorry, we should note that the scriptures portray God as the divine worker. The Bible opens with a picture of God at work, speaking, creating, forming, building. Elsewhere, not only does God appear as the subject of many work verbs, but also people often refer to God metaphorically as a worker. In the Decalogue, the Sabbath command bases the six plus one day pattern of work in Israel on the divine pattern. And then he says this, work is the principal act of worship to which human beings are called. Like other creatures, humans work to secure their well-being and to preserve the species. However, the distinctive nature of human work is grounded in our status as God's images. God created the first humans specifically to govern the world on his behalf, which meant serving, guarding his creation. Indeed, God crowned humans with a measure of his own majesty and glory when he put the entire universe under their feet. Although in a fallen world, work is often difficult and painful, requiring us regularly to rest and be refreshed and renewed, Genesis 1 through 2 reminds us that it is neither a consequence of the fall, 
nor is it a condition from which we need redemption. Now, why do I read that long quote? Well, the Reformed view would say that one of the grounds of the fourth commandment is not only God's six days of work in creation and God's one day of rest, but also before the fall, God commanded Adam to work. He commanded him to cultivate and to keep the garden. Now, some have asserted that Adam and Eve would have had no need for rest before sin entered the world. What would he rest from? Well, I think we should keep in mind that God's creation was not only spatial, it was also temporal. It included land and seas and plants and animals. It also included minutes and hours, darkness and light, sunrise and sunset, and a weekly cycle. I think we should not assume that ultimately the human body's need for rest is a result of the fall. We're tempted to think that a human being's need for rest is ultimately a sign of weakness or frailty. We should be reminded that God himself chose to rest. Not because God's energies were expended or he was tired. God himself chose to. After completing his work, he chose to rest. And so I think the most compelling reason we have for why God worked for six days and then rested for a day is that that would be a model for our lives. My own view is that God has been gracious to us in giving us the fourth commandment. He's given us the command not only to work, to rest, but also to rest from our daily work on a regular basis. I think that we should allow God to determine the ordering of our days for determining the rhythm of our lives. Now, is that a burden? Is the fourth commandment a burden? Well, are any of the other commandments a burden? Well, before we immediately say no, I think that if you look at the fifth commandment, which we'll see next week, Honoring your father and mother, that can certainly feel like a burden, especially if they're older or need constant care and attention. I think the commandment to always tell the truth, that can feel like a burden, especially if we've sinned in some way. Telling the truth can hurt and have consequences for us. I think if we ever attempted to think that the commandments are burdensome, even the fourth one, I think that's only because of our assessment of them or our misapplication of them. And we have to be careful because it is certainly easy to misapply the fourth commandment. We've seen how the Pharisees did this. But I think we've seen that Jesus brought correction. Clearly, deeds of mercy and necessity are expected on the Lord's day. And again, it's not about ceasing from all work. It's about ceasing from a certain kind of work, our regular daily routine of work throughout the week, the things that occupy so much of our time in the other six days. It's not even about a 40-hour job because we work when we're at home in the evening. I feel like I work sometimes all day Saturday around the house. I think that's good. It's not just about a job. It's about working throughout the week and taking time to rest. Um, But immediately questions fill our minds. Uh, If I were to try to think about how do I keep the fourth commandment, lots of questions pop up. And I think perhaps the best counsel I could give, rather than ask yourself, well, can I do X or can I do Y, can I do Z on Sunday? Well, don't make a list of things you can't do. That was the Pharisees' fatal mistake. Rather, perhaps ask yourself questions like these. Is this activity a selfish indulgence? Am I just doing as I please without reference to God and his word? Will participation be a help or a hindrance to delighting in the Lord's day? Am I helping others to take the Lord's day seriously by engaging in this activity? Or you may think that those questions in and of themselves are a bit too practical Perhaps they lend themselves to legalism too quickly. Well, 
if you want something a bit more grand, introspective, historical, look at Lord's Day 38 from the Heidelberg Catechism. It's on your handout. The question is, what does the Lord require in the fourth commandment? Answer, in the first place, God wills that the ministry of the gospel in schools be maintained and that I, especially on the day of rest, diligently attend church to learn the word of God, to use the holy sacraments, to call publicly upon the Lord, and to give Christian alms. In the second place, that all the days of my life I rest from my evil works, allow the Lord to work in me by his spirit, and thus begin in this life the everlasting Sabbath. That's a beautiful answer, I think. And really that answer is more at home with the second view, the spiritual view, than the, even the Reformed view. John Calvin would line up with that, I think. Let's bring this to a close. Um, some of you may no doubt disagree with me about the conclusions I've reached, and that's okay. Again, I'm open to having views or having holes poked in my argument. And it's not my place to bind your conscience. I'm not telling you you must keep the fourth commandment. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm also not telling you that you should not keep it. I actually think that's a much more dangerous thing to do, to tell God's people to ignore one of God's commands. One of the texts we haven't looked at, which I'll read briefly, are Jesus' familiar words at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 17 and 19, where Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish it, but fulfill. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I just feel like I have to take Jesus' words very seriously here. But as much as I believe that, nothing I've said is definitive. Nothing I've said is certainly the last word on the issue. So one more question. Is Sabbath keeping an issue to divide over? Or is it possible for people in one church to have different views of the fourth commandment? Well, I would answer the first question, no, and the second question, yes. I say no, it's not an issue to divide over. I say, yes, it is possible for people in one church to have different views of the fourth commandment. I think we actually have biblical warrant for seeing it that way. Romans 14, each of us must be convinced in our own mind. And I would dare say that in any church where an atmosphere of division exists because of the fourth commandment, I would say that's because of a misapplication of the commandment rather than a right understanding of it. And again, added to this is the simple fact the disagreement over this issue has existed for hundreds of years in church history. And so none of us should be too dogmatic about it. But if nothing else, perhaps today I should say that also none of us should be ignorant about it. I would encourage us all, spend some time if you haven't. Look into the fourth commandment. Read some, study some, pray. See what the Lord would have you to do. But in all of your efforts, all of your reading, all of your studying in this, just be sure you take a break on Sunday. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us for our instruction. And Lord, I pray for perhaps equal parts clarity and charity when we talk about things like this. So Father, please continue to write your law upon our hearts by your Holy Spirit, and for Jesus' sake, amen.